And welcome. It's another episode of the Split Take Podcast. We are here. Uh, it is Jacob and Chandler. And this week we're here to talk about the 1980-something movie Thief. 81. 81. Ah, early 80s. Thief, directed by Michael Mann. And our BFI Sight and Sound 2012 Best Movies of All Time movie of the week is Pickpocket from Robert Brezon. Uh, and yes, where did that go? So interesting enough, when we first started this podcast, I Chandler is aware of this. I created a, a combined list because we're doing both the critics and the director's list uh, of the Sight and Sound poll. That's why it's not a clean 100. It's more like 150. It's- 130 something, I think. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, what I ended up doing is I ended up putting both lists side by side. Interesting enough, there are more movies on the director's list than there are on the critics list. This is just because hmm. the director's list has a lot of ties on it. Um, directors, they're predictable. Or critics. Eh, it's a result of they had a lot of critics to vote on it, like critics from all over the world and only hmm. a few directors. And so the small amount of people voting in the director's list meant that it was more likely to have a bunch of ties. Ah, yes, yes. Ten votes. A lot of movies got ten votes, and that all meant that they were 91 on the list. And so there was a ten-way tie. Whatever. Hypothetical example. So I I put them side by side, and I just kind of did that and put them together. I removed any of the duplicated movies, and I always went with the, the placement the highest placement of a movie. So if, you know, on the director's list, Vertigo is number, uh, what number is it? Can't be that different. I imagine it's higher than the director's. No. Whoa. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, I know. All right. Uh, it is actually uh, number seven on the director's list and number one on the critics list. Critics list quite famously voted for vertigo and this was the first time they voted for anything other than citizen kane as number one let's be honest though let's not completely discount the bias alfred hitchcock is an english man this is the bfi list <laughs> yes although there are a great many foreign critics and um, mm. interesting enough if you ever looked at the the directors voting on the the poll i don't recognize half of them Interesting. Uh, which is interesting. It also, is interesting. I'm mainly joking because if there was a British bias, the red shoes would be on here somewhere. But hey, guess what? As we've said multiple times, it isn't. It is not. <sighs> yeah, and so I ended up losing that list. I had a file on my laptop. I think I did it on originally, which yeah, I don't really use my laptop anymore. And I printed it out. And I'm honestly surprised that I never misplaced that paper at any point. Ooh, we had it for In a good old- while. We did in older episodes, including some of the video ones. You can see me shuffling around looking for that or hear me shuffling and looking <laughs> for that paper. Yeah. Uh, and so I lost it and I, we've been kind of been just going along vaguely for the past couple of weeks. So I recently redid that list along with adding a bunch of interesting information, which uh, I think we're going to. It's not quite done yet. And we're going to use this information to have an interesting discussion about the uh, the BFI list, perhaps when we're halfway through, which is coming up sooner rather than later. It is. Two months? Yeah, something like that. Eight-ish movies? I know we're late, but drink check. Drink check. I'm drinking cranberry juice today, <laughs> which I got last Monday 
uh, for our gaming night, and I was mixing it with vodka. But this today, no Tate's vodka. Just raw. It's just raw. It's just raw cranberry. <laughs> what are I you have drinking? a beer. Uh, ah, pretty Pop good. goes orange blossom. I bought a shit ton of beer for Fourth of July because I had some friends over, and then everybody had like one or two max, so I have a lot left over. So you're drinking those. Ah, I've also realized an error that we made, like we made with Nashville, where you recommended Nashville. I said it wasn't on the list, so we watched it, and then I realized, oh, it is on the list, and it's quite higher. So we kind of skipped ahead to Nashville. We skipped ahead. Inside was on the list. No, Nashville. No, I, 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 this is this what you're about to tell me that we did inside, even though it was actually on the list. No, no, Gooby. Oh, of course. (laughs) Yeah. No. Uh, Touch of Evil is actually uh, higher than I thought it was. I thought oh, it was, okay. we were scheduled to do it, uh, but we weren't. It is a, quite a bit higher. Um, wow. Okay. Touch of Evil. Let me just figure out where it is real quick. So it is mm-hmm, number 57 on the critics list and number 26 on the director's list. That's crazy. That's good, though. I agree. Yeah, it's good placement. And we got it done earlier. So interesting. Hmm. Um, Yes, the other thing while I was doing this uh, conglomeration of the two lists is I was looking at who was voting for each of the movies. And I thought of an idea for a new segment on Split Take. And today we're going to do the first one of that segment. And it is we are going to look at all the people who voted. famous critics that we like, famous directors that we like, and we're going to look at what they voted for and uh, give our thoughts on their top 10 movies that voted for whatever reason. Um, We'll get into that. I'm not sure everyone voted in. Some people voted in the most curious way, and I can't I I just can't (laughs) believe that some of these people think these are the best movies ever made and they had ulterior motives for voting for these films. There's anything wrong with that. Yeah, specifically when it comes to uh, critics, I feel like a lot of times in these kind of events, it becomes almost like a flex type thing (laughs) where these critics are flexing on. This is the movie I know and like. Look what I voted for. Yeah, exactly. Who is our first one, though? Mark. None other than. Yes. Mark. Our very one of our favorite. Film critics, the British film critic who is on BBC one one of the he has a radio show it's on youtube and it's um, great he, he also writes reviews i think for the guardian occasionally and um he's a fairly prolific he's one of the more famous currently working critics i think yeah i think so i mean no one will ever like you know get roger ebert levels of big and if we're talking you know uh uh old media type film critics obviously not you know not not something like red letter media i feel like he's Probably the most popular. Maybe David Ehrlich. Somewhere around there. But he doesn't have as much of a presence, at least in video format. At least in video format. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, do you have the list pulled up or I, I do not know. I shall send I the link pull it up real, real quick. quick. Well, it's it's harder to find than you think unless it, you have it in your your history. I sent the, the link on Zoom. On so, Zoom. Oh, yep, you did. So while Chandler pulls that up, I will tell you what he voted for. Uh, Mark Kermode uh, voted for Brazil, 1985, directed by Terry Gilliam. The That's Devils. pretty based. 
directed by Ken Russell. Oh, don't don't look now. Uh, actually, I'm gonna say Brazil was not on the, did not make it into the sight and sound. Neither did the Devils. Surprise me. Don't look now is on the list. We've we've discussed it. it. Uh, mm-hmm. The Exorcist, 1973, William Friedkin. If if you've been paying attention to Mark Kermode for any length of time, you know that he is a huge Exorcist stan. So, and I'll be completely honest. It's one of those movies that I just assumed was on the list. And it's it is legitimately a crime. It is not. Uh, and I'm looking for the best movie to pair it with because I feel like we need to discuss it. But it's red shoes levels of uh, what the hell are you thinking? Mm. For me, I, I, I remain unconvinced as to the, the greatness of The Exorcist. Not that it's because... a movie or anything. I just remain unconvinced. I liked it. I, I just didn't see any. Oh, you saw it? it? Yeah, I've seen The Exorcist. Oh, I didn't think you've seen it. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think Mark Kermode uh, almost single handedly has really been pushing that as one of the great films. And I, I almost think he's doing a, a conscious campaign for the next BFI list over time. And I think he's going to win. The, the odds are in his favor, at least how I see them. Anyway, uh, Eyes Without a Face, 1960. Haven't seen, seen it, but film. it is on HBO Max. And it is not on the sight and sound list. It's a Wonderful Life, 1947, Frank Capra. Wow. I'm, I don't want to make any carte blanche statements, but I'm pretty sure Frank Capra is not on the BFI list at all, which is surprising considering he's one of like the classic Hollywood directors. You'd think somewhere he, he would have been thrown a bone. Mm. But who knows? Uh, it's a Wonderful Life, though. Classic. Everyone knows it. Uh, this is one of the in- most interesting picks and one that I am uh, I'm going to call based on. Uh, I think he Mark Kermode went on on a limb and he voted for Mary Poppins. From 1964. And I think I, I give him kudos for voting for it. And I'm not going to fight him on it. I'm not sure I wouldn't vote for it, but I'm glad <laughs> someone did. Have you seen it? I'm assuming yeah. you've seen it. Oh, yeah. No. And do you it's like it? It's been a long time, but I've, I, I remember it fondly. Yes. I don't well, think there's enough you... recognition of films aimed at children, a, a younger yeah. demographic on this list. There's nothing, really. That's the same uh, girl in uh, Sound of Music, correct? Julie Andrews. <laughs> it's been so long. She, yeah, she's, she's the titular Mary Poppins. The, titch, the titular? The titular Mary. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, she is. Julian. It's, it's, yeah. No, and you're it, a fan of sound of music. Yes, but I, I haven't seen Mary Poppins since getting into film. So that's how long oh, okay. it's been. Okay. And so the idea of actors and recognizing actors was foreign to me mm. at the time when I was the age I was watching Mary Poppins. Uh, the last three, he voted, Mark Kermode voted for A Matter of Life and Death, which is on the critics list. He voted Wait. for. Pe- yeah, I I saw Life and Death and I saw Palin Pressburger and I always assume it's Colonel Blimp. I forget they have two very popular movies with Life and Death in the title. Oops. Yeah, don't agree, Mark. Anyway, That's but fine. well, I just just put more Palin Pressburger. Why not? I know I agree. I agree that much. Why not? Uh, Pan's Labyrinth, two thousand six, Guillermo del Toro. That's based. Good. That's also his most recent movie. It's only uh, post 20th century movie on there. 
This is true. And then lastly, The Seventh Seal, 1957, Ingmar Bergman, which we uh, discussed, we reviewed, and Mm -hmm. is on a signed sound list. Can't go wrong with that. No, you really can't. It's obvious. It's a great movie. Uh, This is an interesting list because what he didn't vote for any movie in the top 50. No. Not a single film he voted for got in the top 50 of the sight and sound list. At least half of these aren't on the list at all. Um, I appreciate the uniqueness of it. And it's not even I, I, I saw more absurd picks than what are on here from some of the critics and directors. So, yeah, I'm not sure I can complain. It's, yeah, it's an interesting ass, uh, assortment here. But I think the only I mean, there's a few that I'm questioning Eyes Without a Face seems particularly, I mean, again, I haven't seen it, but as far as I'm aware, I mean, it's a good horror movie, but he definitely leans more towards horror. I would say definitely. at least, at least four of these are horror. Devils, if you count the devils Don't Look Now, The Exorcist, Horror or Thriller, Dark Thriller, Don't Look Now. Pan's Labyrinth is also Eyes Without a Face, Devil, Pan's Labyrinth, horror. yeah, yeah, I, I'd say it's in the same kind of sphere of influence. So, yeah, that's like yeah. five. He has an interesting slant to it. And I, I, I respect the, the voting for yeah. a underserved genre and area of film. That Now, is there any movie on here in particular that you feel shouldn't be on? Be on? Shouldn't. Yeah. I, I would kind of echo your your sentiment i'd question eyes without a face i haven't seen it so i can't quite comment yeah. but i've never really heard it being spoken of in in that regard yeah also be honest um as much as I, I i think the exorcist definitely should be on here i almost feel even more strongly about the inclusion of brazil because i think terry gilliam as a whole um I think is a very interesting filmmaker that often gets overlooked in these kinds of uh, recognitions. And while we're at it, let's just come on, put Monty Python somewhere. One of the Monty Pythons. I don't care which one. I'm I'm so happy you said that. I'm not sure I would have. I'm not even sure I would have the guts to put a Monty Python film on here, even though I am one of the biggest Monty Python fans you you yeah. could possibly find. And. I don't know. At the very least, though, Brazil is, you know, it's it's quite consistently called you know, Terry Gilliam's masterpiece. Rightly so. It's a, a brilliant piece of filmmaking, of of world design, science mm-hmm. fiction. Um, I can see why it, it's not on here. Um, it might be a bit too quirky, a bit too out there. I don't know, for some people. Um, and if I were to choose between something like Blade Runner, which is in the same vein of world building yeah. science fiction, I think I'd go with Blade Runner over Brazil, but Brazil, I'm at the very least happy that um, it has gotten some recognition on this in this poll. And he's uh, ah, not the only one who voted for it. Two critics and two directors voted very for Brazil. Nice. Yes. Yes. So that was Mark Kermode. <laughs> interesting, uh, interesting picks. And um, certainly one of the, the more eclectic choices uh varied and not conforming to your your traditional idea of, i would expect you know, nothing less from the top Kurt mode movies yeah yeah it's interesting i think that there is and i don't know what it is but i think there's some way in which the poll could be run 
in a way that allows people to pick the kind of out of the box picks as well as putting their votes towards things that, you know, they're like, okay, well, this clearly, Citizen Kane is clearly one of the best movies ever made. But then the mental process is, well, everyone else is going to vote for Citizen Kane, but no one's going to vote for Mary Poppins. So I want to be, give it, throw it a bone. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a world where you can vote for both and not be penalized yeah. for that. I don't know what that is, but anyway. Yeah, so marker mode, interesting, interesting picks. Uh, always, always interesting from him. Stuff, content, <laughs> thoughts on film, whatever. Whatever the kids call it these days. Yes. Uh, da, da, da. All right. So we are going to rush through our weekly diary of movies. Just uh, Which is a damn shame because I've been watching some heat. Well, that's fine. And you can let us know. This is heat. Go watch it. Um, yeah, that's true. Keep things. Going to try to keep things short, simple. Uh, what, what'd you watch when and why'd you watch it? And what'd you think? Yeah. One sentence. Um, and then your pickups for the week, because it is July 2021, the Barnes and Noble Criterion Sale. Maybe start with those. Sure, we can start with these. Well, do you want me to go through mine stuff first? Yeah, we'll, we'll do your your pickups and your diary, and then we'll do mine. Well, our, our pickups are going to be awfully similar, so I'm just going to go with the one that... Um, is definitely an only me buy, and I finally splurged and got the World of Wong Kar Wai box set. Beautiful. Which this is my first. Well, this is my first like deluxe box set type thing I've bought because I consider like you know I have the John Cassavetes box set, the the Before trilogy box set, and those are like pseudo box sets. Mm. But you know, then you have stuff like the Bergman stuff, the Lone Wolf and Cubs, the Toichi or whatever. That stuff is its own league. This is my first purchase of the deluxe box set, and I really like it. I love Wong Kar Wai. There's a lot of movies in here I haven't seen. Chungking Express is one of my top five favorite movies ever. I'm very glad to finally have it on here. My only complaints is that the box is kind of hard to open, and I really dislike the fact that you don't have the original versions of these movies on here. Because I'll be mm-hmm. honest, one of the movies I watched was Fallen Angels. And uh, the, all these movies are have been retouched, repurposed by Wong Kar Wai himself, supervised by him. And Fallen Angels, I don't know. It just doesn't feel right to me. And I'm afraid that's going to be the same with Chunking. I, lo- I did a little like scene by scene comparison of the newly restored version and the old version. And that old version has a sort of inexplicable dreamlike quality that I really like in his movies. And I feel like I wasn't getting it with the new version. Would have been nice to have both. Kind of dumb, but whatever. Um, I also got this, the human condition, the human condition, yes. the human condition, which is uh, particularly, I think, famous amongst letterboxed viewers as all three are within like the top 25 of letterbox narrative feature. Yeah, I kind of feel like it's one of those uh, Lord of the Rings type things, though, where all three of these, it's hard to rate on an individual level. They're mm. all so connected to each other. Um, I, I've, I've only heard about this. I just now today realized it was the same director as Harakiri and Kwaidan. So I'm very excited because that guy has an eye for uh, um, visuals. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll talk about more because I think you got it too. But finally, my surprise pick I just got today. Mirror. I got Mirror. Just released on July 6th. Yep. It's a long way, but it's finally here. Tarkovsky's Mirror. And I'll be honest, when I went into Barnes & Noble today, I was not expecting to get Mirror. You weren't. I, was, I weren't. Nope. I just looked at everything that was there. Mirror was like the first thing. 
I thought, oh, that looks good. And I looked at the spines and mirror is a thick fucking criterion. <laughs> it's a thick boy. It's it's nice. I was unconvinced as to the, you know, it's it is a special film for those who who have watched it, those who love it. It is uh, treated with quite reverence, along with a lot of other Tarkovsky's and um, the stalker release of uh, Criterion Stalker release, uh, perhaps underwhelming for a film that has so much. Oh, for many reverence. reasons. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so I was worried upon seeing the cover art on, on Criterion. Which is still like, not I great. hope I hope this isn't going to be one of one of those. And it wasn't. Thank goodness. It is a beautiful box. Um, it is. It feels nice and thick. It's got plenty of special features to it. And uh, no, com- yeah. no complaints. No complaints. I haven't seen the movie. Um, yeah, this will be my first time seeing it. Maybe we'll do an episode on it. But yeah, like I literally was looking through the spines. Uh, There's like there were five copies of Mirror. So when you have five of these side by side, they command uh, the space. So yeah, I thought certainly... fine. Fine. And, and I mean, we, we have to do an episode on it because it's on the BFI list. Is it really? Oh, well, there you go. Although way far up. And I was actually going to say, I, I think Mirror is one of the. the Few films that I will demand multiple viewings before we talk about it. So I, I should watch it soon then. Or at some point before we. Yeah. Okay. All right, no. gotcha. I, I popped in the disc actually. And here's just to prove it. I mean, I said I'd do my pickups later, but here's my copy of Mirror. It's beautiful. Uh, I popped in the <laughs> disc and I popped in the, uh, the third scene is one of the. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in, in all of cinema. And I, I thought to myself, what if I just turn off the subtitles? And just because it, it's it's often just like streaming dialogue at you in a good way. Yeah, like it, it's it's a scene that is overlaid with someone reading a poem. And so you're trying to like analyze the poem in your head while you're watching the visuals. And I was just like, let's shut off the let's shut off the subtitles. I've watched <laughs> it before. I know what the narrative is. Um mm-hmm. And I just enjoyed the scene for what it was. And I think I'm going to give Mirror a watch just entirely without subtitles. And once you watch the film, you realize that that's not an absurd idea. It's not a film that is. It very much has a lot of content to the dialogue, but it is it stands on its own visually. Yeah. As with most uh, Tarkovsky. Yeah, that's pretty much all I got. Uh, I'm going to go back at some point. I don't want to spend too much. This is already one hundred and forty dollars. But the only thing I want left and I'll update you next week if i get it is uh secrets and lies so hmm. Hmm. pretty good yeah i'll do my pickups real quick we'll just we'll just get all might as well just keep consistent yeah, yeah why not so um i forgot we haven't talked about any of the pickups because i went twice um mirror <laughs> mirror's uh, good yes allegedly a uh, movie i've been hesitant to buy for the longest time and it is picnic at hanging rock is that john ford oh peter yeah uh, okay. peter weir uh, this is a movie that i i is spoken of very highly in the on like the Criterion subreddit and stuff like that. And I watched it and it's, it's fine. Um, and I think it, I'm is it a Western? It, n- well, it's Australia and it's kind of like oh, okay. a mis- mystery of sorts. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's time to revisit. I'm, I'm ready to to engage with the film a bit more than I was perhaps the, the first time I saw it. Speaking of engaging with films more. uh well, I don't think that's going to happen with this film. Uh, Solaris. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, geez. This is very, very infamous as a film that I do not care for. I am a huge uh, Tarkovsky fan. I've, I've come around on quite a few of his films. Not this one. 
Maybe. Which is, I will. Hmm? How many times have you seen it? Once all the way through. The second time I got about an hour through and I'm like, eh, I'm not feeling it. It's still not doing it for me. So <laughs> I stopped. Um, Which is even funnier when you realize that he made it in defiance of 2001. Yes. So. I. Uh, I have all the Tarkovsky Blu-rays now. This is why I bought this. I was like, well, fuck it. There's Mirror. Let's get uh, Ivan's Childhood, Stalker, Andrei Rublev, Mirror, Solaris. I've... I have all of them except for Solaris. Just realized. You still haven't huh. seen Ivan's Childhood, right? No, I haven't. I keep feeling I have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom, I should say, really likes Fred Astaire. So I got Swing Time. <laughs> And I have seen a Fred Astaire movie, but uh, by seen, I mean, I was in the room as a very small child while my mom was watching a Fred Astaire movie. So I have no recollection of, mm. of He's the him. guy who did Sing in the Rain, right? He was in that. Yes. Yes. Uh, this uh, Criterion looks really good, has a lot of interesting special features. Curious to watch it. Uh, I'm going to watch it with my mom. Um, and I got it mostly just for that experience. I do try to go in uh, every sale and buy at least one I can show my mom, which is surprisingly difficult. <laughs> uh, very surprisingly difficult. I also realized we haven't talked. So I forgot to get my first. So those four were my first picks from the Criterion sale. And my next Memories of Murder. Uh, of course. Of course. Uh, chunky boy two discs as a, a full kind of commentary yeah and you know old one too where was the hmm, maybe it was a different one yeah anyway it also has a student film of bong jun ho so i'm curious wow uh, having having seen his filmography there's little little bits left to to sample of, of his work uh, human condition obviously and then uh Talked about this before. Uh, my intentions of getting it. Flowers of Shanghai. How shall new Shen. release? Mm-hmm. New release from the Criterion Collection. Spine number one thousand seventy-seven. Uh, it is a Taiwanese film uh, set in Shanghai, a Shanghai brothel. Uh, beautiful. Same cinematographer as In the Mood for Love. And so, uh, what I've seen looks beautiful, kind of in the same vein as that. And I, I look forward to watching that. Tony Long is also in that, isn't he? Yes. Yes. So there are a few similarities between Let's this say, no, and be a good movie in the mood for love. And that was uh, interesting enough. Those three picks represented uh, East Asian cinema in uh, Taiwan, uh, Japan and oh, wow, South yeah. Korea. So. Yes. So far. I've gotten. Uh, no, never mind. I got two Russian films. I was going to say I got each of my picks was from a different country, but I got. Two Tarkovskis. <laughs> Doubled up. All right. What'd you watch? Ah, yes. What I watched. Okay. So blazing through it. Uh, I, I just went, I dove right into the Wong Kar Wai box set. I watched a few of his movies. The only ones I hadn't seen before so far. Um, I watched his Tears Go By, his directorial debut. Um, it's very good. Uh, it's one of those rare debuts where the he knew exactly who he was stylistically. Like, it still feels like a Hong Kong movie, but it's got a long a lot of Wong Kar Wai isms, uh, colorful, moody lighting, voiceover, like sort of stream of consciousness type voiceover. 
Um, it's got that weird shuddery uh, slow-mo that he likes to do. I like it. I liked it more than the second one, which I watched, which was Days of Being Wild. Pretty good. Um, I the only issue I have with Days of Being Wild, it's a movie about a guy, a young, mysterious bad boy who steals the heart of every woman he meets. And the guy. I mean, he's fine. <laughs> I, I not for a second did I believe that he had this sort of attractive quality. Not that he was a bad looking guy. I just you need someone like Tony Lung in there. Come on. <laughs> uh, and then I watched Fallen Angels. Very good. It's kind of batshit insane. Have you seen this one? I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of batshit insane. Um, it was initially conceived as the third Chunking Express story. I don't know how the fuck it would have done that because there's literally like five different characters. It was good. I liked it was like 100 percent style and the characters were very odd. Um, I didn't fully grasp it because, again, it's just so insane, especially compared to the other Chunking stories. Mm-hmm. Good, though. Um, I watched The Illusionist. My God. Uh, this is the animated adaptation of a long lost Jacques Tati uh, script. Um, it's animated in the style of like a Disney movie in 2010, which, as we all know, at that point, it, traditional 2D uh, hand-drawn animation was essentially gone um which is really interesting because it adds another layer to this movie which is essentially about this transitionary period where this Jacques Tati stand-in character who's a magician who's being slowly edged out by um uh the new musicians and televisions and modern magic and it's very sad and I just I was waiting the whole time for it to get not sad and then it just got sadder it doubled down I think it's kind of a masterpiece. Um, I'd like to watch it again, but anyone who's a fan of Tati should add this because it's it's not directly Tati, but it's very Tati influenced. Um, I watched Multiple Maniacs, uh, my foray into John Waters, because recently all of his stuff was added to the Criterion channel. This is a batshit insane movie. Uh, Divine gets a rosary job, which is where she is being anally stimulated by a rosary in a church. Um, it's <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> I, I don't know what I don't know what I should have expected from John Waters, but that wasn't it. Well, it's funny because I watched it and then right after I watched the commentary because John Waters does the commentary and I love John Waters. I think he's very funny. Mm. He's a very charming man. And he was talking about how, like, yep, uh, this was shot in a church The the owner of the church didn't know that this is what we were shooting in the church. And right outside of the frame, you can even see it in some scenes is a friend of John Waters who is d- essentially distracting the, the deacon or whoever owns the church while they film this in there. And apparently the owner of the church was uh, invited to the screening. And during the rosary job scene, he cried <laughs> and basically <laughs> begged John Waters to never reveal where they shot it. And he still hasn't. <laughs> Good. And the funniest part about it is that after that rosary job scene, there's just a random scene of a guy like doing heroin in the church. And uh, on the commentary track, John Waters is just like, yep, that's a real guy doing real heroin. We don't know him, but he offered to do heroin for the movie. <laughs> That is the most John Waters thing I've ever heard. That's great. Uh, the only I haven't seen multiple maniacs, but I have seen Pink Flamingos, which is a wild, wild ride. Just yeah. as just as much as that sounds like a wild ride. So he's he's like the he's like punk rock before punk rock existed. His movies make mm-hmm. no sense, mm-hmm. but I, I, I enjoy the energy. 
And finally, I'm going to end with uh, a movie that I'm going to formally recommend you, uh, and that is Robert Altman's Shortcuts. Yes, uh, Robert. This, this is a yeah. movie that I, I my eyes perused in Barnes and Noble, and I was thinking, should I get this? And I ended up not getting it, but it is uh, certainly still on the table for maybe purchasing it mm-hmm. this this flat this Barnes and Noble sale, or at the very least watching it soon. It's very good. Um, it feels like the movie that Magnolia wanted to be. It's very similar. It's about twenty two different characters living in Los Angeles. It's very Nashville y where we sort of go in and out of these characters' lives. Um, it's got a great cast. Um, I don't know. I just I loved it. It's probably my favorite Altman. I'd even put it above Nashville. It's wow. it's very good. Um, but the definitely recommend it. And that's all I got. Okay, cool. So, uh, oh wait, hold on. One more thing. I just want to say now. I finished. Finally finished The Sopranos. I think I might. I might like it more than Breaking Bad. Oh, we'll discuss fine. this at another point. But that's uh, fine. Sopranos is a good television program. Look, I recommend it. You you can like whatever you want above Breaking Bad. It doesn't make <laughs> it better, but you can like it. <laughs> that's fair. So, uh, I I've been watching a lot. Quote unquote. Um, a lot of that, though, is a continuing of my yearly binge of uh, Poirot murder mysteries. <laughs> uh, these are feature length television films, so they count as they films. Count. Uh, I don't know what to say about them individually other than I, f- I find much enjoyment in watching them. And honestly, after watching each of them at least four times at this point, they're still not boring. I still like watching them. Uh, the other thing I did, not movie related, is I reorganized my room. If you might be able to see, sort of. Uh, the TV is now behind me. I don't know if you noticed. Uh, where oh, there once was not a TV. TV used to be on that side of the room. Um, just kind of opened up the space a little bit. I also reorganized my criterions. Usually, uh, every time during a major sale, during when I purchase a bunch, I change it from organizing from spine number to organizing by alphabetical and vice versa. I just like switching things up. Uh, and uh, I like the the different patterns that the, the movies make when you, you put them in a different order. And I like uh, when I do that reorganization, I like picking up each criterion, taking a look, maybe reading the, an essay that I skipped when I watched the movie last and whatever. So it usually takes me an evening or so to do that. It's a whole little little deal. Uh, Yes, in terms of movies, other than good old Poirot, uh, I finished out June with Sense and Sensibility, which is directed by Ang Lee. Uh, after watching Eat, Drink, Man, Woman and talking with East Coast Chandler uh, and, uh, like two weeks ago about Ang Lee on our Minecraft server, uh, I was like, yeah, let's check out another one. And <laughs> Sense and Sensibility was leaving Amazon Prime at the end of the month. And so I was like, eh, fuck it. Last movie I'll watch of the month. So I watched that. It's good. It is everything you would expect from a uh, adaptation of a classic British novel. Uh, it, it pomp and circumstance. It is uh, perhaps a bit too predictable for for most of its runtime in terms of its filmmaking. Although the beginning there was some very uh, nice, snappy, uh, clever editing. Uh, and intercutting between things at the very beginning, like the opening 10 minutes, which kind of got me interested in the film and kind of made it a bit more of an interesting experience than it might otherwise have been. Hmm. Uh, good movie, though. 
solid. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm not going to get another box set unless I watch everything from the Fellini box set. So if I finish that before the end of the month, I get to buy a box set. I probably won't, but I'm going to make the best <laughs> effort that I can. Uh, so far, I, I have watched uh, Variety Lights and uh, The White Sheik. That's it. Those were a couple months ago. And so I continued the other day with uh, I, I, Il Vitaloni, I Vitaloni, uh, which is one of Martin Scorsese's favorite films. Uh, it is a... a I recommend it highly if you are a fan of Scorsese. Scorsese has talked about it in uh, quite a few interviews on YouTube and whatever. Um, interesting enough, he doesn't do the introduction for that on the uh, Criterion box set. Um, it is a film kind that I see a lot movie. of. <laughs> I see a lot of echoes in uh, Goodfellas, in particular, amongst other things. But uh, good movie, which means it it's is. Good. E yeah, it is good. Uh, it, it's about it's about a group of guys who are in their late 20s, early 30s. They're loafing around. They're not getting married. They're kind of stuck in a rut in a town. And it's just uh, about them trying and failing to escape dull provincial Italian life and the fun times they have along the way. It is certainly not as stylized as um, my preference for Fellini. And my preference for Fellini lies entirely in La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half. It's not quite at that point, but it is still a... Uh, Definitely more Fellini in narrative than it is in form. And I mean, form later later on. Uh, I also watched The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance on uh, the 4th of July. I felt that was appropriate. It is a, uh, a good uh, kind of mythic American movie. Uh, Great. Which I think, I think you... The rest of the year, I, I have plenty of problems with the, the mythos of America and all the, uh, the problematic <laughs> shit that comes from that. But on the 4th of July, I like to enjoy myself just a little bit and uh, not think about problematic things. So I enjoyed Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne. Love seeing both of them in a movie together. I'm not the biggest John Wayne fan, but I love him right next to Jimmy Stewart. There's something very charming about them together. Can I just say the funniest thing in Liberty Valance is at the beginning when they're setting up the flashback and Jimmy Stewart talks about how he's looking at the wagon and he's talking about, you know, starting to reminisce about how he pulled into town on this same wagon one day. And he's just like, oh, I remember I was just a kid. And then flashes <laughs> back to a 48 year old Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> oh, the magic of the movies. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, I was also make... the introduction to Lee Marvin. Great, uh, great act. I'll make quick mention of two Poirot episodes. Uh, one is Poirot <laughs> cards on mm, cards on the table. <laughs> Uh, no comment on the quality, but in the episode, uh, cards on the table, uh, Leslie Manville is in that occasionally, uh, almost always, actually, there are some famous British actor in, in the episodes, whether that's just like a bit part or something bigger. Um, and then in the, after the funeral episode, uh, Michael, uh, Fassbender is in that one amongst other people. There was someone. I recognized from what we do in the shadows. I don't remember her name as an actress, but the TV show. Mm. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. So I, part of the enjoyment is seeing and recognizing famous people who have become famous later. Cause oftentimes this, they started mm -hmm. their career. Uh, they were Shanghai into being in this strange <laughs> murder mystery show. It's a rite uh, of passage. You either do Harry Potter or Poirot. Yeah, this is true. Uh, I think with with those two, you you have the entire British film industry 
taken care of. <laughs> I'm not lying. I, I think I think it's done. Every single British film actor has been in either Harry Potter or Poirot. Uh, lastly, I continued with Fellini and I watched La Strada, which is um, it is a good movie. It is a movie that uh, has a lot of reverence to it that I've never really gotten into. And that has remained the, the, the case. <laughs> Uh, it is on the BFI list, and so I wanted to watch it again. And when it comes up on the list, I am uh, looking forward to watching it with the commentary. Uh, Scorsese actually does the the introduction for La Strada on the on the box set. That was very interesting to to listen to. It is a film that is um, it's well made. I think it is perhaps a little repetitive. It is uh, doesn't really grab my attention until the second half. At which, which point it is uh, it is a good, sad, tragic film uh, coming from the uh, cinema's greatest clown, Fellini. Uh, not in terms of being <laughs> funny, but he is literally a circus kind of person, a lover of the circus and uh, all that. Lestrada, good movie. It's not my favorite. Uh, I, I have, again, more of a preference for Fellini's later, more... Uh, virtuoso bombastic style which is not necessarily present in Estrada. that's what i watched so it's our first movie first movie is michael mann's thief 1981 his debut feature film starring james khan uh it's a movie about a guy named frank who's an uh ex-convict who is a master thief Particularly, his skill set lies in uh, safe cracking, um, and he is employed by the Chicago mob to do a few hits so he can fund his lifestyle that he feels he's missed out on by being in prison. Um, it is a spiritual. It's like a it's like a good double feature for Pickpocket, which is our BFI is. movie of the week. Um, it's, it's my favorite Michael Mann movie. Probably the only one I really like. I'll be honest, but uh, what did you think? So the only other Michael Mann film I've seen is uh, what's it called? Heat. Heat. That's it. It's on my shelf somewhere. You haven't seen Collateral? Uh, no, no. I've only mm, seen okay. Heat. Uh, I believe another Michael Mann actually was added to the criteria. Man, Mine Hunter? Manhunter? What is it? Man, no, Manhunter is the um, his Hannibal Lecter movie. I don't think that's in the Criterion. Oh, you mean added to the Criterion channel? Ah, yeah, that was recently. Yeah, that was recently put up. And I'll be honest, I don't care for that one either. What? Audio file. Sorry, a new audio file. No problem. Got a call. Pick. Yeah, Thief. Um, Heat is, Heat is good. I, I liked it. I wasn't particularly drawn to it. Wasn't blown away by it. And I really liked Thief. I really did. I it was a a thoroughly enjoyable film, one of of style that drew me in, and I was surprised at the amount of substance that it had to offer. And um, I'm not sure I can say much more without getting into spoiler territory. I always forget to mention that, but spoilers. <laughs> for the rest of the conversation that's that it's a good movie go watch it yeah. it's on hbo max at, currently it's in the criterion and collection the criterion. it's on the criterion channel i think is nope. it not no nope. oh, okay yeah hmm, interesting uh but you can't buy the criterion blu-ray good movie i think we both recommend it on with the conversation well the one 
I think the the non-spoiler thing that we can just get into is that I'll be honest, I this is my second time seeing Thief. Um, it's a movie I just I th- I've said it before in the podcast. Every once in a while, I just get this magnetism to a movie, something about the premise, the poster, the name, something about it. Just it, it calls to me. Happened under the Silver Lake, happened with the Ghost Dog, and it happened with Thief. So when I finally watched it, I thought this is sick. And I don't usually like Michael Mann. I don't like Heat. I don't really like Collateral. I really don't like Manhunter, which is his uh, Hannibal Lecter movie. It's uh, God. and <laughs> Michael Mann is one of those people that as the years go by, I, I swear everyone I know is just becoming a Michael Mann fan. Hmm. Heat to well, me, he f- I, I have yet to be converted. So yeah. there you go. To me, he feels like an an auteur, auteur Michael Bay, because they're similar <laughs> is, yeah. in style. Yeah, I see it. Um, but Thief, to me, uh, it's just great. And one thing in particular, I think it has one of my favorite opening scenes, maybe ever. I watched that. That scene is on the Criterion YouTube channel, just mm-hmm. the first eight minutes. Mm-hmm. And I've watched it like 20 times. Mm. <laughs> I, I knew nothing about Thief going into it, and uh, I, I haven't really had any draw to, to explore Michael Mann's filmography. Uh, it doesn't, didn't, didn't pull me in. Uh, but with this, you know, I just watched it. I, I knew it was a, vaguely it was about a uh, criminal doing a heist. It was another heist-esque crime movie. Um, and that's all I knew going in. And I was, I was hooked, quite like you were. Within the first 10 minutes, because my God, rain, <laughs> yes. rain in, in film is just the best thing. It really is. Ever. Period. 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 And then added on to that, there is. Michael Mann shot this film. A lot of the shots are shot on telephoto lenses with just the nicest of bokas, which if you don't know means that in the background that are out of focus, lights have this kind of blurred effect to it yeah. it just makes it so smooth and and atmospheric and gives the um kind of a cool vibe to the whole thing and there are certain scenes in the film where i was just like this is beautiful cinematography i am surprised surprised i never heard anything about thief really like i've i've watched plenty of uh cinema videos on on youtube and i, I really haven't heard anything in, in terms of shot how it's shot in terms of heist films whatever um yeah. but the opening scene is just it is also a great example of i, I when the opening scene finished because there's a very clear ending to that scene the car drives off mm-hmm. it, it's this this contained unit and i paused the film and it's like 10 minutes on the dot <laughs> it's like screenwriting 101 get your opening scene done in 10 minutes i was like this is great i'm gonna have fun fun with this film i'm not gonna have to worry too much i'm not gonna have to yeah. think and just enjoy it and yeah it's also funny because this movie so it was released in 1981 Mm. um which means it was filmed around 1980 and you know you i'm sure you've noticed this too that um this sort of decade defining stuff in any in any like art medium it typically doesn't come at the beginning because the beginning of of the decade is usually still the previous decade you know, mm-hmm. like 2009, 2010 um, or like 1980 is essentially still the 70s. Right. Uh, Partially because was, the movies were still shot in the 70s. And yeah, exactly. Being, 
carried over. But into this that. is one of those weird movies where I feel like so much of what's in Thief became like the standard for 80s films down the line. Hmm. Um, one thing in particular that I love about this movie is the score. Um, Tangerine mm. Dream is the, the uh, band that did the score. And they also they did two of my favorite movies that I watched for the first time this year. One being Thief and one being Sorcerer. Um, oh, they did Sorcerer too. They did. Yep, they did. Wow. Sorcerer. Okay. Well, I'm sold so now. Much. Yeah, it, it'll be <laughs> T minus one week and I will watch Sorcerer. I'll check um, in with you next time on that. The yeah. So the score is like it's super 80s, but not in a way that feels like dated. It's kind of like the Blade Runner score. The Blade Runner score often feels very 80s, but not in a way that's, you know, super cheesy. Um, yeah, like I got, I got Blade Runner vibes yeah. from both like the aesthetic, the reigning city grungy aesthetic and the music on top of that. Yeah, it's it's a yeah, it's like prog rock type stuff. And if you look at like later movies in the decade, stuff like Lethal Weapon uses a lot of that kind of music. It's kind of jazzy. It's kind of rocky. Um, but ironically enough, this score was nominated for a Razzie. What People really did not like this score when it came out? Yep. Yep. So um, th- this is, I think we're finally going to get into spoilers uh, genuinely. So I do have one issue with the film okay uh, and the issue is uh it's okay it's not really one issue it's it's a, a a larger problem and that is i wasn't too um thrilled by the ending of, of the movie um, <laughs> i think so throughout the film there there are some very interesting ideas brought up about kind of like the american dream the the nuclear family and and the the ways that media and society kind of project onto people of like what they should, what the kind of life you should have. And our, and our main character is obviously driving at getting that kind of life, uh, a life that he's missed out on being in prison for so long. And he has this great little collage thing that he's put together of other media sources that he's it's it's prison art pulled. <laughs> it, it's great. And it the the ending sort of boils down to a simplicity that I felt didn't quite explore the theme as much as I, I would have yeah. liked. Although this is not necessarily a, a detriment because I think it does. I think there's a very interesting thematic implication at the end, almost um, almost anti-capitalist in a way where he's burning all of his his property to get out of this cycle of, of being in debt in, in debt to the uh the the mob boss um but ultimately um the the my my real issue comes at the very very end which is the last scene where he invades the home of the mob boss to kill him and it is this is this ties back in with why someone might hate the score this is the point i think michael mann's style gets a little too much and he needs to tone it down in I was that, thinking that too, specifically the way that people died. <laughs> well, you know, the, the dying is fine. Um, but what I found interesting about the end of the movie is like he's he's spent the entire film quite successfully building up this life for himself. And then it all comes crashing down. And then at the end, the the visually, thematically and narratively, it's telling me he's a lonely man at the end. Like he's He's failed. He's lost everything. And yeah. he's won, but he hasn't. He's still alive. Um, and like that's that's kind of a sad, lonely moment. And it's on top of that is this fun punk rock vibe music to it, which is telling yeah. me this is awesome. <laughs> Yay, he did it. 
And like, if I were making this film, if I were to be so presumptuous, I like that final shot, dead silence. Like no music at the end. Seems like the more appropriate thing of just watching him walk off alone. Seems to like cap off the film more appropriately. And, And it just, I could really feel the music kind of doing a lot too much heavy lifting at the end. See, but I feel in that specifically in that ending shot, it feels like a Western to me. It's not it's not you bad. Know. It's just yeah, I, I yeah, felt yeah. that there could be some more narrative cohesion and yeah. some resolution to that thematic idea at the end. The thing about the ending that always fucks me up is the fact that he basically sends uh, that girl and the baby off. But I'm like, this this girl really got the short end of the stick because she didn't really want the baby. <laughs> I was just dumping like, baby the, on her and just say, fuck off, go away. She, what are the logistics of that baby? Because the mob boss insinuates the, that they he bought the baby, but uh, did they adopt the baby? Like, is it is the paperwork in their name? Yeah. If so, like, it doesn't matter who bought it. It's your child. Like, you can't call Child Protective Services and say, well, I bought the baby <laughs> and now they're being ungrateful. <laughs> That, that's not how that works. So I'm assuming yeah. the mob boss still own, owns the baby. He's got the deed. <laughs> In which case, the woman could just drop the baby off. I know. It's weird. I, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but I think the whole thing, I think this. Because like on paper, this is a pretty standard movie about a complicated guy, criminal, if you will. But I really do think what elevates it is James Con, because over the years, I've realized because I also recently watched The Gambler with another hmm. James Con movie. I've recently realized that James Caan has one role he plays very, very well. And this role of Frank and Thief is very similar to his role kind of in The Godfather. Mm, yeah, a bit. S- kind of similar. Um, but I just think he's absolutely great in this movie. And I'm watching okay, it again. Occasionally, I found myself my, mentally having to distinguish between The Godfather. Like my, my brain slipped into <laughs> Godfather mode while watching it. Yeah. But he's so great in this movie and watching it again, I thought that maybe I was thinking a little too highly of it the first time that I saw it, because I don't know if you're like me, but like whenever I watch a movie, like within a week, a majority of the plot just completely exits my brain. Um, but when I'm watching this, like every scene starts and I'm like, oh, I now that I've seen like a frame or two, I remember exactly what happens in this scene. And um, that's just this great scene after great scene. I especially love um, James Khan trying to adopt a kid. <laughs> I think that's a very funny. And he gets angry at the adoption agency and all that. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, it's it's a great performance. I, I like. I didn't know really what James Khan's uh, his his ability as an actor because I'd only seen him in The Godfather, and he's he's in and that Elf. film, but he and he's not. Ah, yes, apparently I have. Uh, and I Bottle Rocket. I don't remember his performances from James <laughs> Conn. As you said, you forget the plot and apparently James Conn. So this is the, you know, really the second lead or the first really lead performance from James Conn I've ever seen. And he he sells the role. And I mean, the, the most interesting stuff is, you know, him as as not as a criminal, but in his life and trying yeah. to put that all together. And beyond that, you know, the the uh the criminal stuff breaking in is all shot very well too but it's the thing that draws me in and and really kind of elevated the film above just a crime film is is all the kind of background character stuff that he really especially when you realize that this it's like it's a two-hour movie like a clean two hours a little bit over but there's only two heist scenes two thieving scenes in the whole movie 
There's the beginning mm-hmm. one, and then there's the ending one. And they're both great, but it's yeah, not quite it. the end. Well, yeah, the final act. The final act. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when you start to realize that, you know, the thieving only takes up a good 20, 15, 20 minutes in the movie, you realize that he has to carry the whole movie is just him. It's not about his thieving, it's about his life, it's about his personality. And I think the first time I like realized that, I'm like, am I gonna be interested? Because it's, you know, typically mm. these kinds of movies, I'm expecting a lot of thievery. But mm-hmm. it's such a small amount, and that stuff is almost more interesting than the thievery. Because James Kahn, he rides this line very well between just a belligerent asshole, but he's a <laughs> passionate, lovable one. Like the first both times that I watched it, that scene where he takes his date out of the bar very aggressively. Very aggressive. Like that's yeah, uh, that's some cringe content by today's standards. But in, in a good like that's the point of the character. Yeah, it's not a exactly. good both times that I saw that. I always just think this guy's an asshole. But after that diner scene, immediately after it, I completely understand. It, He's arrogant. You understand him. And for some reason, like you, you don't forgive him, but you forget. That yeah, he, he just exactly. roughly dragged her out and shoved, uh, just shoved her in a car. Um, but because, you know, that's a testament to the character and the depth. Yeah. And at the very least, you're willing to to give him some leeway in the fact that I think the film does deal with a little bit with institutionalization in uh, in America of people who have just like grown yeah. up in the prison system and all that kind of stuff. And how that the fact affect- that he was in there for stealing forty dollars. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. was uh, granted a little bit more back then, but still oh, barely a bit. Yeah. Still 12 years for $40. Well, he, he, he did kill a guy in prison. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know, that's fine. <laughs> it's just guy in prison. It's also funny. Uh, Jim Belushi is in this, who I forgot <laughs> twice that he's in this. His second best role. <laughs> <laughs> he's not as convincing, especially like the, the beach scene. He has some really weird line readings there, but I don't care. Whatever. Hmm. He's his young ward. What are you gonna do? Yeah, yeah. Just lots of great scenes. Also, the the mob guys are terrifying. That's really scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they're 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 kind of schlubby, or you know, the the main guy is just kind of like this this big guy. Just seems more like a, a businessman, which he is to the point. Um, but then there's there's like this quiet, like you know, there's almost like no hint of threat. He reminds until me later on in the film, yeah. and you know. Like, you know, obviously he's a mob boss, so it can't just be this this one guy who's being so nice. And and there's this kind of simmering undercurrent of of a threat behind the scenes. He's got that same facial structure of Joe Pesci in the last 20 minutes of The Irishman. (laughs) (laughs) He's got those old man jowls. God, especially the first after the first heist, when James Caan goes to meet the guy who he's selling the diamonds to. That guy is so weird looking. He's got really tiny eyes and he's just this huge <laughs> dude sitting in a Chicago diner. Yeah. But uh, yeah. yeah, great cinematography. I especially love that shot in the car dealership where all the lights are just, you know, reflected mm. on the hoods of the cars mm. that so shiny and smooth and great lighting. I think the the scene cinematography wise that really sticks out to me is when he first meets the mob boss that that rendezvous out on the it's like a pier along a ri- the yeah. river. Um, with the city in the background, it's just the darkness and the lights um, out of focus in the background and their meeting and just the way it's shot on telephoto lenses is I ha- half of my enjoyment of the film was just the the aesthetic pleasure of how Michael Mann was shooting it. It was great. The diner scene, too. Those background yeah. lights. The, yeah, like you're saying, that weird little focus. 
But one of my favorite shots shots in this whole movie, again, going back to the opening scene, just the shots of the drill. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. There's that one little shot where the camera looks into the drill hole and you can see the exposed tumblers. Mm-hmm. And he gets mm-hmm. that like hammer and thing. He just pounds it. And it's just I don't know. It's so it's so tactical. To me. It's just such a cool well, scene. yeah, I mean, there's that. And then there's uh, from my research on the film is Michael Mann actually consulted with actual thieves to to kind of put together the the, the heists sequences. And they have a very uh, a realness to them. Which is great, and in particular the the use of the um, the oxid oxy torch oxidization torch. I forgot the exact terminology of it. In the but in the second heist, they yeah, have this yeah. this huge pole, and like, what the fuck is that? What what is that? What are they doing? And so I went onto Wikipedia, <laughs> and I looked it up, and it's really interesting. Like how like that's an actual tool people use to to melt and work with steel. And that's really cool. And then actually showing the entire process of them yeah. lighting it, of of getting all like the furniture out of the way and and the um, uh, fire extinguisher, like it felt really well thought out in in the way that I appreciate with high scenes. And two, in you know, if you compare it to something like Ocean's Eleven, where you can tell there's like an air of fantasy to their mm-hmm. to their heist plan. Not that that's a bad thing, but you know, just the way James Con talks in this movie, you're you, it feels very real. Like this, these are real observations made by real thieves, and they're going about it in a matter of fact way. Just this, the same kind of way a plumber talks about unclogging your pipes. He's just very <laughs> blunt. It's it's no secret magic and trickery. He's just like, I need a big fucking torch. I need hmm. to be in there for 18 hours. And it's just the way they actually do it. It's just a lot of waiting around, cutting wires and reacting. It's just it's not the prettiest on paper, but, you know, there's just such an efficiency to the filmmaking. It's just ugh. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, we recommend Thief. Good movie. Yeah. Thief's a good movie. Good Mike. Good Michael Mann movie. Yeah. I have. (laughs) Thief man. My favorite man. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, I I think it'd also be my favorite Michael Mann film. I I should probably give Heat another watch at some point, but that's uh, a topic for discussion for another time. I have 15 minutes left. Hard cut off. Is that enough time to talk about pickpocket? Yeah. <laughs> okay, <think> so. <laughs> great. I, I, have, I have maybe a lot to say and I'll just ramble and then we'll be done with it. So this week's uh, BFI Sight and Sound movie of the week is Pickpocket. Uh, pickpocket is our second Robert Bresson, Bresson movie. Uh, we talked about Bresson Bresson. Yep, yep. Uh, way back in the beginning. Uh, pickpocket is from 1959. It is about a uh, young man who Michelle. is um, Michelle doesn't want to work. He just wants to pickpocket people. And um, that's what he does. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where does one begin with uh, Brisson? So. I f- fondly remember Larjean. It is a film that I might I like have been lukewarm on the first uh, first time I watched it. But as I think of it over time, I really have grown to like it. Same. It's the only Brisson that I, I have fond feelings for. Um, and Same. I wanted to give I've seen Pickpocket before. I wanted to give it a, a good second try. So I listened to the commentary all the way through. Like actually listened to it and watched for the most part. Um, and then I just finished rewatching it about uh, an hour before we started talking uh the film just by itself 
and I can say this is this is not the brisson for me. It's not. I don't. I don't. I still yeah, I don't, don't care for it. I don't dislike this movie. I like no, it. Neither do I. Um, it's fine. Yeah, it's very. I what I appreciate about Brisson is he's one of those rare filmmakers that over time he got even more simple. Like his his cinematic quest was to boil cinema down to its bare essentials to demonstrate clearly and plainly what makes film film. I appreciate that. I do feel that it often results in kind of. I don't want to say one dimensional, but kind of flat narratives for me. And this is another one of those cases where I really appreciate the filmmaking. I think the actual pickpocketing sequences in this are great. Specifically, the first one, the sequence on the train, um, the sequence on the subway, I think really great. The stuff in between, not as good. It's brief. It's to the point. It's not as layered as I would prefer. It's fine. I feel similarly where I don't really care. I've seen A Man Escaped. Eh. This, I've seen Pickpocket before. This is my rewatch. Eh. I listened to Richard Linklater talk about it. He's a big fan of it. Hmm. It's not bad. But yeah, it's no Lorge. It, it's a film that I, I wanted to like it. I really did. Um, I, I want to engage Same. with Brisson more. Uh, he's a lot of filmmakers like him um, and a lot of people talk about him with such reverence in, in, in a lot of different terms. And I just I don't even know where to begin. Like this one in particular seems like a exercise in style. And not so much applicable beyond that. I, I, I challenge lovers of Brisson to, to tell me what is the application of pickpocket going forward, like beyond really intricate film circles, critics talking about the, you know, the history and all that. What is its wider implication? And I, I have to say, like, this is not a movie I'd recommend to anyone. Really. <laughs> even Sounds even filmmakers. See, I think that there are not that this is not me. This yeah, is a no, good I, movie. It but it's something where it's just like I think there's a lot of different stylistic elements in here that are interesting, but they were done better before and they were done better afterwards, just maybe not all together in one place, if that makes sense. Like no, they're it. all being done. And one of the interesting things, like I, I listened to the commentary and my God, the man is. Yeah, I, I tried. I got six minutes into it and good Lord. And I also watched uh, our good friend, um, Paul Schrader, talk about <laughs> uh, pickpocket. And I have to say, I think I just philosophically disagree with Paul Schrader as an individual, as his <laughs> philosophy on film. I, I, I There's nothing he said where I wasn't like, I disagree. I disagree. And one of the things uh, there was like an emphasis on sound is like Brisson is using sound in this interesting way. And I'm like, is he though? Like, I, I would say, yeah, he is, but not in any way that I feel is particularly unique or, or demanding yeah. of particular reverence. Like one of the, the examples, the, the film critic um, gave was the, the opening scene. And where he's pickpocketing at the racetrack race yeah. and is like, well, we see uh, Michelle pickpocketing and but we never cut to the racetrack, but we hear the racetrack. Like, OK, 
they're at a racetrack, so you would hear the racetrack. Obviously. They're like there's nothing mind-bendingly like interesting or creative yeah. about that use of sound to me. No, I, and there's other sequences. Sorry, just to complete no, the no, sound no. rant. Um, and mostly my mostly my energy is coming from disagreement with other people praising it, not necessarily criticizing the film. Yeah. So take that. Uh, my one criticism: there are some scenes where. Uh, particularly in uh, the pickpocketing scenes within the subway and within like there's a train sequence, train station sequence um, where Brisson just just layers the soundtrack with footsteps. And as soon as you start tuning into the footsteps, it's fucking annoying. It's not good sound design. I'm sorry. All right, I'm done. Uh, I, I don't I don't disagree. <laughs> but what I do, what I will say about the sound is that in those pickpocketing sequences in particular, because um, I was watching this with headphones the second time. Hmm. Um, and when you're doing that, like, again, uh, what I appreciate about Brisson is, is like these scenes in particular, it is pure cinema. It's no music, no dialogue. It's just gestures and 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 gazes and edits and, you know, whatever. And the sound really transports you. But again, th- those are such small parts of the narrative that it doesn't necessarily a masterpiece make. Um, but what I will say about this movie and what I will say about its lasting implication is that I do find it fucking hilarious that Paul Schrader loves this movie because he essentially <laughs> took this character and he used it four different times. He used it in Taxi Driver. He used it in Light Sleeper. He used it in First Reformed and he used it in I can't remember the fourth one, but I do find it funny that he loves this this movie, though, in general. I can understand style uh, contextually. If I was a kid in France, I'm sure this would blow my mind. But it's one of those things where it was a gateway to arguably better cinema. Again, Thief is very similar, but I fucking love Thief. And I'm not as crazy about this. Next um, time I go to Barnes & Noble, I'm going to look for L'Argent. And I want to watch L'Argent again. And I just have this feeling that... I, like, I'm not against Brazon's style yeah. in and no, of I agree. itself. I, agree. I just, it didn't work for me here. And the narrative I want to didn't see his come donkey together one. to anything interesting. Have you seen the donkey one? I've seen the donkey one. <laughs> oh, no. Is the donkey one I, not I, good? I, no, oh, no. no, 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 no. I need to rewatch the... Uh, okay. Althazar, yeah. Balthazar. I can... Uh, Ahuzar, no, Balthazar. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I don't know. Know. I'll, I'll right. fucking know. What I yeah. also find... Uh, what else, well, something else I find interesting is that, mm. comparatively, uh, Brisson is a much older filmmaker. He was, uh, he was pushing 60 when he made this. Oh, wow. Because no, that is people older. Yeah, hmm. people, you know, he he's lumped in with like Truffaut and Varda and um, uh, Godard. But, you know, those people were young, stylish, hip filmmakers. And Brisson was an old man. <laughs> just, yeah, it is interesting. About that I find funny. Yeah. And this is definitely a um, I'm not sure if it's like officially a part of it, but it is definitely kind of a French new wave film. It's coming out around the same time. Yeah. It has all the hallmarks of being. Uh, pushing the the aesthetic boundaries of the craft and the thing if if i need to give some praise to to pickpocket because i think there is some uh really interesting stuff going on here with the the editing and the montage Mm -hmm. like you said before the pickpocketing sequences there are brisson has a way of kind of isolating elements of just a hand or a wallet or cash and all that and putting it together, the way he's editing and the way he's cutting between um, the Michelle just kind of standing there and then like the pickpocketing happens. Yeah, it's even more so than tension. I was really, really much uh, reminded of the Kuleshov effect 
if anyone's ever taken a film school class, it's one of like the first things you always do the um, the Hitchcock or whatever, where it's like, here's a man and here is a apple. And like you're you're cutting between two things that have nothing to do with each other. But by putting them next to each other, you yeah. give them new meaning. And specifically in a lot of uh, persons editing in the pickpocketing sequences in the beginning and a few other places, it's like it's the Kuleshov effect uh, just mastered. To the yeah. point where, like you just see because Brisson famously told his actors stop that stop acting stop it what are you doing and told them don't don't give me emotion just don't give me any of that and so you're you're really left to kind of read into that and I I think the he film also uses is, non actors which is yeah. interesting uh, and I think that the film is boring for other reasons I I, I like that <laughs> stylistic choice um, yeah and I think particularly in terms of like the montage the way he's using editing and stuff like that it really that with his editing comes together in a very interesting stylistic way that I, I find those those sequences to be interesting in a stylistic manner. And there's other sequences where the style doesn't doesn't grab me. And that that's saying nothing about the narrative, which I think uh, it's well, fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's there. So you're yeah, saying that nothing. the prequels are uh, based in Brisson. <laughs> George Lucas well, gave the old. Uh, Brisson acting uh, lesson. <laughs> I, I guess guy. to a certain certain extent. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I I have a lot perhaps to say. Um, I don't I don't have time. Um, I watched a bunch, but like filmmakers that I think I I suppose I should explain. Like mm, Yorgos Lanthimos, I think is a good example of an act of a director who kind of took the idea of actors giving a stilted, deliberately stilted performance to achieve an effect and i think it works much better like if i'm i'm isolating just that aspect of brisson i think that works better in in lanthimos's films uh, wes anderson too to a certain extent yeah i think it's a little different and and you know the editing i think you can find this style of montage editing to be more engaging in a different film and it's yeah, just the the cumulative effect of brisson not drawing you in in any way i i dis i disagree with the the <laughs> insinuation that paul schrader has and other people have that by distancing the audience you get the audience to think about it more and i disagree i think you need something it just needs to be one element it can be the editing it can be the the characters it can be the music something in the film needs to be relatable and interesting for the audience in order for them to at least care about paying attention to the other stuff that is, you're using a distancing technique. And distancing techniques can work. I do like them in certain circumstances. I just felt on the whole that thematically, character, it, none of it worked for me. Um, <laughs> as a whole, as a masterpiece, so-called masterpiece of cinema. I enjoyed it. I find it an interesting exercise in film aesthetics. And uh, not much more than that. It's also only 75 minutes, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not angry. Edit. I like it. Yeah, it's, it's one. Of, it's one of those instances where I don't. Di I don't. I don't dislike the movie. I understand why it's on here. I just disagree. I disagree, Gary. That's all it is. Yep. That's all. So it is. obviously, you don't think it should be on the BFI. Uh, no. And if I, I'm gonna preemptively state that if I said no to Larjean before, I'm gonna say yes to it now. Yeah, I was thinking that too, because I also Larjan is also I liked it at the time, too, but it has gone up over the years or over the years over the well, I guess maybe multiple years doesn't matter. 
Um, but yes, uh, that's a no from me. Hmm. I was also thinking a lot of uh, Le Samurai. I think the, the character oh, yeah. of the dispassionate uh, criminal is is more engaging in that film. Uh, so at least character level. Le Samurai. Look like Harry Potter's uh, half brother in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that that was uh, that was pickpocket. Another bridge on. So next time. I have it somewhere here. I have it. Somewhere Can't lose here. it again. You just got it back. <sighs> Fuck. So uh, I don't know what we're going to do next time. I'm going to suggest No Sudden Move, the 2021 Steven Soderbergh sure. film. Is it time to do Rear Window or we could do something? Sure, else? let's do Rear Window. Why not? So we'll do Rear Window. All right. So No Sudden Move and Rear Window will be next time on the Split Take Podcast. Peace. Peace and love. Peace and love. <laughs>